We're going through the book of Hebrews right now. We've gone through from chapter 1 to verse 1, and now we find ourselves, after this quite a bit of time, in chapter 5, verse 11. And we're going to go kind of fast today because there is a lot here, um, and there's a lot to, there's a lot I'm, I'm just not going to be able to get to. So we're going to hit the ground running. The writer of Hebrews has spent five chapters showing us, showing the Hebrew Christians that Jesus is better. We've seen that over and over again. Jesus is better than all else. He told us that the Son of God is God's final word. He is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He said Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the Old Testament high priest. He is our perfect high priest. He is the fulfillment of all that uh, Judaism pointed to. And we know why he's saying these things. Because these professing Hebrew Christians were enduring persecution and suffering. And they were being tempted to return to Judaism. We've looked at it all the way through the book of Hebrews. He told them over and over again, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your hope. Hold fast to Jesus. And last week in chapter 5, verses 1 through 10... We saw Jesus is the fulfillment of the high priest, the Old Testament high priest, the Old Covenant high priest. He is our perfect high priest. We looked at those verses last week, 1 through 10. He is the only one who can represent us before the Father, make atonement for our sin. We looked at all of those things last week. And as the writer of Hebrews explains Jesus' priesthood, his, his representation of us, the fulfillment that he brings to the, to the Old Testament priesthood. In verse 10, he said, Jesus is a high priest, a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And we talked a little bit about that last week. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, is going to pick that subject back up in chapter 7. But before continuing with that line of thinking, that line of teaching of Jesus being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek and Jesus being our representative and all that that means, he stops in chapter 5 verse 11 and he stops this, this line of teaching, this presentation of Jesus' high priesthood to address a problem and to give a warning before continuing on with this same line of teaching. So remember that chapter 5 verse 11 through really through 620 is a digression, a, a, a stopping of his teaching as he gives us this warning and this, uh, this issue to deal with. And then he picks right back up in chapter 7 verse 1, actually 620, 7, 1, and begins again talking about Jesus as the high priest, Jesus in the order of Melchizedek. Y'all with me? I'm going to ask, are you with me a lot? I need you, even if you're not with me, just to say, yeah, it make me feel better. <laughs> Chapter 5, verse 11, through, really through 612 for sure, is one single unit. Now, we're going to look at it in two sermons because there's so much here. And I'm going to have to go really fast just to get through verse 3 of chapter 6. So we're only going to deal today with chapter 5, verse 11 through 6, 3. But I want to read all the way through 6, 6. So you get really the full force of the point that the writer's making. He says this in chapter 5. About this, meaning Jesus' high priesthood, Jesus in the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. 
For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, this is chapter 6, verse 1, let us leave the elementary doctrine, the word is word, the elementary word of Christ, and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Then he says... For, based on that command I just gave you to leave these things because it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So, The whole purpose of this warning, the whole purpose of this section, chapter 5, verse 11, talking about mature and immature, and then this warning that comes after it, this terrifying warning, the whole purpose is to show them the danger of spiritual immaturity because the immature are those who will not stand when the crisis comes. That's the whole reason for the letter of Hebrews. He he continually is talking about, I know that you're suffering persecution. I know that you're going through all these things. I know that you're being tempted to go back to Judaism, to go back to the old religion. But don't do that. Hold on to Christ. Hold on to Jesus. He says, hold on to your confession. Hold on to the hope that you have in him. Don't go back to Judaism to have an easier life. So in this section, he warns them about regressing into immaturity because that is the first step toward apostasy. So as we begin, I'm going to go kind of fast, and it's by necessity. Otherwise, nobody's watching football today if I don't. So the first thing he says in chapter 5, verse 11, which he stops teaching about Jesus as the high priest. He'll pick that up again in chapter 7. But he gives us really the problem of spiritual immaturity. He says, about this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. When he says about this, he's referring to what he just said. Verses 1 through 10 in chapter 5, all about Jesus being the perfect high priest and priest in the order of Melchizedek. He says, I want want to tell you more about Jesus as your high priest. The one who represents you before the Father perfectly and fulfills all the Old Testament priests, that all that they pointed to. I have a lot more to tell you about this, but he says it's hard to explain. And notice why it's hard to explain. It's not because the topic is so complex and it's so nuanced that you guys won't be able to get it. The reason it's hard to explain, he says, is because you have become dull of hearing. The word dull just means sluggish or or lazy. He's not accusing these Hebrew readers of being too stupid to understand what he's talking about. He's not saying that they're too inexperienced to understand what he wants to tell them. 
He's indicting them for their laziness and their negligence to hear the word of God and put it into action. To live like Jesus is better, what he's been teaching them this whole time. The application here in this section of Hebrews is very specific. They are sluggish, lazy, dull of hearing in responding to the truth of God's word about Jesus. So having become dull of hearing is not just, you know, falling asleep during the sermon or zoning out when you should really be paying attention. It's nothing like that. It's being dull of hearing, being lazy to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done so you don't live like it is true. That is going to be proven through the rest of this text, but that is what the book of Hebrews is about. First, I want you to notice that that this is not the way that these people had always been. He says, you have become dull of hearing, implying that they had not always been this way. You know, after years of trial and years of persecution for their confession of Jesus, years of of suffering for for their profession and for their hope in Christ, they had become sluggish. Dull of hearing in their devotion to the gospel, in their awe, in their wonder about Jesus and what he has accomplished. There was a time when zeal for Christ's name and willingness to suffer for Christ's name characterized these readers. A time when they lived like it was true. He references this in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. We've read this several times in our exposition of Hebrews up to this point. He says, but recall, this is Hebrews 10, 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully, joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Notice why. Because since... You knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They once lived like Jesus is better. They once lived like the things he has taught them in Hebrews. They believed them and they trusted them and they held fast to the fact that Jesus is better. But he says, but now spiritual immaturity characterizes them. They had become dull of hearing to the glories of who Christ is and all that has been fulfilled in him and the possession that they have been given. They're sluggish to hold fast to Jesus as the fulfillment of all of their needs and all of their hopes. And now, because they were dull of hearing in these things, they were moving back toward the Old Testament. Moving back toward the old covenant, the temple and the high priests and the sacrifices and all of those shadows that Jesus has fulfilled. They were becoming dull to the glory of what they professed to believe. Now I want you to make sure that you understand the problem before we move on. It is not that they just stopped growing. It's not that they just got stuck in their spiritual growth or they plateaued in their spiritual growth. The problem is they're moving backwards. 
They once knew that they had a greater possession, a better possession, and now they had become dull of hearing, meaning they were formerly capable of receiving and applying and walking in the glory of the gospel that the writer of Hebrews wants to continue teaching them, but now they're not. Hebrews, the book, has been, it's been focused on teaching them Jesus is better. And it will continue to teach them that. He's been focused on teaching them what it meant, what it means to have a high priest who is able to help you in your time of need. We saw that verse not too long ago. He's doing this. He's warning them now because they weren't treasuring Jesus above all things anymore. They weren't striving to walk in light of what Jesus has accomplished. And their dullness of hearing wasn't because they were new believers and immature because they were new believers. Verse 12 says, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles uh, of the oracles. I don't know why it translates it oracles. The word is just work. The basic principles of the word of God. You need milk, not solid food. By this time, you ought to be instructing others in how to stand and how to walk and how to hold fast to your confession, how to hold fast to Jesus. You should be teaching others how to treasure Christ and glory in Christ through your trials, through your suffering. You've been believers long enough. You ought to be making disciples and helping others hold fast to their hope. But instead, he says, someone needs to come and to teach you again the basics, the elementary principles, the basic principles, the ABCs of the word of God. He says, you need milk, not solid food. Now, I mean, that's an easy picture for us to discern. I mean, he's saying, you're babies. That's what he's telling these Hebrew readers. Now, before we go on, I want to make a few clarifications. Milk in Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, in this section, is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing at all, but it is not what a fully grown, mature adult can live on. Second thing I want you to see is that we, we just need to clarify what milk is because I have read a lot of dumb stuff this week. If you've ever heard teaching on this passage... Chances are pretty good that you've probably been told that milk is the gospel. Milk is the doctrine of salvation. Milk is Jesus atoning for your sin and what he has given you in salvation. And the solid food, well, now that's the, the deeper things, you know, the, the secret things, the secret truths of the end times or, or, or the secret principles of, of living. And, and I'm going to give you my take on that. Uh, and then through the rest of this section, these verses, and into the next section next week, I'm going to explain how I came to that conclusion. The solid food, here's my thesis. The solid food that the writer wants them to mature and progress toward is the biblical doctrine and truths about Jesus, about who he is, about what he has accomplished, and how the gospel of Jesus applies to our daily lives. That's my thesis. The writer has just spent five chapters talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And when he gets to Jesus as the perfect high priest in the order of Melchizedek, he stops that presentation and he says, 
you guys need to be mature to take what I'm saying. And then after this section, he spends the next four chapters, seven, eight, nine, and 10, talking about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. So if the milk that the writer wants us to get past is the gospel and the doctrine of the atonement and salvation, then the whole letter of Hebrews is milk. In the book of Hebrews, the gospel, Jesus' identity, who he is, the work that he has done as our sacrifice, as our priest, as our, our salvation, that's, not, that's the solid food. That's not the milk. The word of God from front to back is about the gospel. So when you hear, when you hear that, okay, the solid food is the gospel, we're tempted to say, well, okay, I, I know the gospel, so that must, mean, that must mean that I'm mature. Well, not necessarily. The writer's not talking about simply knowing these things. Maturity is, is not being dull of hearing, not being sluggish or lazy in hearing these things, applying these things, feasting on these truths, and applying them to our lives. In short, the mature live like these things are true. Jesus is who he says he is. He has done what he says he has done, and in him I am complete. Not only do they profess it, not only do they believe it, but they live like it's true. How do I know that? It's not because I'm so spiritually discerning. It's because he tells us in the next verse. He gives us the definition of spiritual maturity. He says, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He defines the immature and the mature for us. The immature, he says, the children are unskilled or unexperienced, your translation may say, in the word of righteousness. And the mature are skilled, trained in the word of righteousness by constant use of their powers of discernment to distinguish good from evil. The difference between the immature and the mature is not a matter of knowledge. It's not a matter of how much you know. It's not a matter of how much time you have been a believer. It is their skill or training in applying the gospel. It is their consistent practice, their consistent use or lack thereof that makes the difference. Are you with me? Remember, remember the, the point is to say you're with me even if you're not with me. Okay, good enough. You might say, hold on just a second, Jason. Verse 13, it says right there that the word of righteousness, meaning the gospel of grace, Christ's righteousness imputed to us, that teaching, that word, that, that doctrine is milk. It says it right there in verse 13. No, it doesn't. Slow down and read what it actually says. The one who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. To be skilled in the word of righteousness is not to live on milk. The immature 
are described as those who are unskillful, inexperienced in the realities of the gospel, of the word of righteousness. The readers of this letter, the Hebrew Christians, they had all heard everything that this letter teaches. They knew the doctrines about Jesus and about the gospel. They knew what the writer was teaching them. We just read in chapter 10, he said, you guys used to live like this. You used to do this. You used to have zeal for Christ. The problem now is they weren't treasuring them anymore. They weren't building their lives upon this foundation anymore. So that their lives, their worldviews, they were no longer grounded and rooted in these truths about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They weren't trusting in the glories of who Jesus is. In the glories of the fact that he is my high priest and he has made atonement and he represents me. They weren't cherishing them, holding firm to these gospel truths. And that's why they were being tempted to turn back to the old way. Back to Judaism, back to the old high priest, back to the old sacrifices. Instead of living like Jesus is better and grounding their lives in that fact. They were flirting with going back to the old way. Why? To save themselves from persecution and the suffering they were enduring for professing Jesus. That's the immature. Then he defines to us the mature. They are the ones who are skilled in the word of righteousness. How do you get skilled in it? He tells us. Training your powers of discernment by constant practice, by constant use to distinguish good from evil. When he says good and evil, it doesn't just mean good and evil actions, right and wrong actions. He's talking about everything good and evil, right and wrong doctrine, right and wrong beliefs, right and wrong worldviews, good and evil. The mature walk so closely and depend so deeply on their high priest, Jesus, that they're able to see the danger of false beliefs, false desires, false actions or evil actions, temptations, the danger of compromise and how they act and how they live and the choices that they make. Their powers of discernment are trained. How? By constant practice. The mature know that in every decision, every desire, every temptation, the way that you respond, the way that you think, in the way that you believe, you are answering the question, is Jesus better or is he not? It had started with small things. We just read in chapter 10, you used to do great. You used to hold fast to these things. It has started small. Is Jesus better or not? They had been pulled by temptation to question now whether Jesus is even worth holding on to. The writer of Hebrews has consistently told them and will consistently tell them, hold on to your confession. Hold fast to Jesus. Hold fast to your hope. The mature, he says, constantly practice their discernment based on the word of righteousness, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me show you a picture, an example of the difference between mature and immature that may help you understand what I'm trying to say. Both an infant and a mature adult need nourishment. Just a fact of life. You all know that. If you put any liquid whatsoever in front of a thirsty baby, 
they will drink it. Even if the label on it says, warning, this is poison. A baby can't tell the difference between what's going to nourish them and what will destroy them. All they know is, I want something to drink, I need something to drink, here is something to drink, must be good, let's do it. They follow their appetites, they follow their instincts, they follow their emotions, and they can't apply truths that they can't see. A thirsty adult, on the other hand, looks and says, I know I need a drink. I know I want a drink, but I can't drink that because that will destroy me. The writer of Hebrews' point is that your beliefs, what you ground everything on, what you're trusting in, what you're hoping in, they have consequences. Your beliefs about who Jesus is and who Jesus has made you to be and who, what he has done as your high priest and your sacrifice and your atonement, those beliefs have consequences. They affect how we respond to circumstances that we live through as these Hebrew Christians were suffering. If Jesus is all that the word says he is, and as your high priest he has given you all that the Bible says he has given you, then live like it's true. Discern the good from evil. And don't go back to drinking from the fountain of the old religion that could never do anything for you. That's what he's telling them. Yes, drinking from that fountain, it may give you some relief right now, Hebrew Christian. It may give you some relief from the, the suffering that you're going through, from, from holding fast to your profession. It, it, it may give you some, some ease from the trials that you're enduring, but it will destroy you. You're like a baby saying, I'm thirsty and here's something to drink and not caring that it's going to kill you. These milk drinkers were not immature because they lacked knowledge. It was because they were dull of hearing. They were spiritually and sluggish, spiritually sluggish and slothful, not living in the power of the truths that they said that they believed. So how do we become trained and mature? He tells us by constant practice of our powers of discernment. By digging continually into the word of righteousness, the gospel, and constantly practicing, walking in light of those things, living like they are true. Are you going to do it 100% great every time? No, you're going to fail a lot. That's why you need constant practice. You do it by hearing Jesus is better and then practicing, walking, believing that it's true. Practically, this, I mean, of course, involves all the things you would guess. You know, feasting on the Word of God, communing with God in prayer, growing together in fellowship with the church as we help each other follow Jesus. I mean, that's how we grow in Christ. And the reason is because those are the tools we use to train our powers of discernment by constant practice. That's how we practice living on a gospel foundation. And we're walking in, as we walk in these truths... We're changed by them. 
We grow in them when we trust. Yes, it's true. When we do what the writer said you used to do in chapter 10. You used to have zeal for Christ. You used to receive joyfully the plundering of your property. You used to be able to hold fast to Jesus in all of these trials. You used to know that you had a better possession there than here. He says, now you're dull of hearing these things. They're not spiritually, they're not spiritually um, mature just because you're educated or knowledgeable. You know, you don't get spiritually mature by just learning new things. That's part of it. But the, you, just because I know a bunch of things doesn't make me spiritually mature. If your life is not being increasingly conformed to the image of Jesus, you are not striving toward maturity. And his point in this is that when suffering and trial comes, that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews, the mature have a deep foundation. Now they still hurt, they still cry out, they still suffer, they still have to endure these trials. All of the feelings that you have in these, they still experience all of those things. But they are rooted in the fact that my high priest stands in heaven and has given me all things. He is representing me perfectly before the Father. And instead of running away from the only one who can give me righteousness and salvation, the mature go to the throne of grace to find help in their time of need. Just as the spiritually mature Jesus did in the garden. Now, finally, he gives in the last first part of chapter six, uh, this, the, I titled it wrong. It should be the remedy of spiritual. Oh, it does say immaturity. Somebody fixed it. In the first service, it said, it said the remedy of spiritual maturity. And I said, well, we don't need a remedy if we're spiritually mature. <laughs> he says, therefore, okay, milk, solid food, mature, constant practice, discernment. Therefore, because of this, this is what I want you to do. He says, let us leave the elementary doctrines of doctrine. Again, it's word. I don't know why they translate it as doctrine. The word of Christ. And here's the command. The only command in this section. Go on to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. We're going to stop there for today. There's a lot of debate about these things. And people that I greatly respect and admire, who I have learned much from, who I still learn much from, disagree with me about the teaching of this passage. So before we begin, I, I, I teach you this with humility and the understanding that my position is not held by all believers. The command here is simply go on to maturity. So stop regressing into dullness of hearing and move forward is what he's telling them. To do this, he says, we need to leave these things, this list of good things, meaning we need to leave them in place and build on them. Don't stay there is what he's saying. And I want to make sure you see, he says, let us. He's not saying, okay, you baby Christians, you need to leave this and leave that. And then go. No, he's saying, let us do these things. He includes himself. We all need to do this. The command is to go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of these things. Now, the most common interpretation of this passage is that these things, all of this, this list of things, 
is that they're the basics of the gospel, the truths of salvation. You know, you come to Jesus and just knowing, uh, knowing that you have forgiveness and understanding the basics of the gospel. And therefore, the teaching is to leave the basic gospel truths and build on them with deeper things. If that is true, that means the whole letter of Hebrews is teaching us things that we need to move on from. When you read this list, what these things are, are general, biblical, good truths that are taught in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They're general. They're not specific at all. They're general truths that Christians agree with. Of course, they're all true. But also, Jews living in Judaism would agree with also. When it says the elementary or basic doctrine of Christ, basic word of Christ, we read Christ and we think Jesus. But remember, he's talking to a Hebrew audience tempted to return to Judaism. The word Christ is just a Greek equivalent of Messiah. He's talking about the elementary and beginning doctrine, beginning words of the Messiah, those that are found in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. The promises and the descriptions of who the Messiah is and what he will be and what he will do and all of the things. That's the milk. That's the baby stuff. We must go on to maturity, trusting and holding to the fact that the Messiah has come now. And all of those references, all of those prophecies, all of those promises, all of those things are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We can no longer talk generically about Messiah. Now we must show that Jesus has fulfilled it all so that there's nothing to go back to. Chapter 7 through chapter 10 will show us exactly that. When he gets through with this digression, he goes for four chapters showing Jesus has fulfilled all of those Old Testament things. He's saying we can't lay the foundation of Messiah again in those teachings back there because they're fulfilled in Jesus. We can't lay again the foundation of repentance from dead works. Dead works here means works that lead to death. Repentance from works that lead to death is taught in both Judaism and Christianity. Faith in God, just a very generic thing, also taught in Judaism and Christianity. Washings could be any cleansing ritual, lots of them in Judaism, probably still practiced by Hebrew Christians. But a Jewish Christian could describe baptism as a ceremonial washing to keep from getting all his Jewish neighbors mad. The laying on of hands practiced in both Christianity and in Judaism. Resurrection of the dead taught in both Christianity and Judaism. Remember, Paul used the doctrine of the resurrection to escape his trial among the Sanhedrin because he knew half of the crowd were Pharisees and they believed the resurrection of the dead. Eternal judgment taught in both the Old Covenant and the New. What does he mean to leave these things and go on to maturity? The professing Hebrew Christians who were tempted to go back to Judaism probably weren't just outright denying Christ and repudiating Jesus, but they had regressed to simply holding the basic doctrines that they as Christians could affirm, but that the Jews would also affirm. 
They were living by these generic doctrines without going into the deeper truths of Jesus fulfilling the old system, the temple, the priesthood, the covenant. They did this so that they could hold common ground and agreement with those who were persecuting them. They were trying to survive with a minimal Christian profession to avoid all this suffering that they were going through. Notice that the things in this list, they're all true. They're all good. There's nothing in the world wrong with them. But they're the foundation on which the gospel sprang forth. No longer is a vague faith in the man upstairs alone sufficient. It's faith in Jesus as God and Messiah that is necessary to be saved. To live like these basic, generic, vague, if you want to say it that way, doctrines, to live by these things was to pull down the gospel house, to pull it off the slab, and then try to live on the foundation. The point of this warning is that since Jesus is God's final word, since he is the heir of all things, the creator of all things, the radiance of God's glory, he is the expressed image of God's nature, he is the one who upholds all things by the power of his word, because Jesus has atoned for all of our sin and sat down at the right hand of the Father, now crowned with glory and honor, and he is our merciful and faithful high priest who has made perfect atonement for our sin, Let us give him the due place in our hearts and our thoughts and live like these things are true. Let's turn away from from those things that offer temporary happiness in this life but will destroy our souls if we continue to trust in them and hinder our growth in Christ. Let us drink deeply from the word of God that we might see Jesus more and more and be transformed by him more and more rather than drinking from the pseudo-spiritual concepts that even the world can embrace. The world thinks faith is a great thing. The world thinks love is a great thing. They just define it a whole lot differently than we do. Let's get away from those, those vague things. And drill down into who Jesus is and what it means to have faith in Jesus. Let's move on from the vague concept of faith in God. Let's give deeper, let's go deeper than than just a belief. Hear me when I say this. I'm, I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. Let's even go deeper than the belief that living a life based on the values found in the Bible is good enough. Do you understand what I'm saying when I say that? I see biblical principles. I see right and wrong. I see what I'm to do and not to do. I'm going to live like that. You need Jesus as a high priest representing you. You need the Spirit of God living inside of you. We need more of Jesus. We need to see him more, to treasure him more, to understand what he has accomplished for us better. Let us never be satisfied with our view of Jesus, our understanding of who he is, our wonder at what he's done for us and what he continues to do for us as our high priest interceding for us every day. 
Let us devour these glories and be changed by them as our powers of discernment are being trained by constant use in them. So the command is go on to maturity. Engage with your high priest. Let your heart dwell on your portion in him. Behold Christ on his throne. See him as your life your righteousness, your strength, live in his adoption, in his reconciliation, worship him in spirit and in truth, commune with him daily and by constant practice, let your powers of discernment in these things grow. Don't ride the fence, but hold fast to your hope. Hold fast to your confession of Jesus. Depend on him. Because that last little phrase says, and we will do this if God permits. You need him. Look, he, he presents the call to maturity in this section. And we're done. I know we're over time, but I'm sorry. Not really. <coughs> he presents the call to maturity in this section. We're, we're only able to do half of it because of time. But he presents it as not just, hey, guys, come on, let's be mature. Come on, let's do better. Come on, we can do this. Let's do better. He's not presenting it that way. A sluggish, dull of hearing, lazy, compromising heart that falls into immaturity about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done is dangerous. We're only presenting half of this section. We'll look at the other half next week. But he presents falling into this state, falling into immaturity, being dull of hearing in those things as the first step to apostasy. Look at verse 4. We'll look at it next week and we'll dissect it next week. He says, it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened. We we read it earlier, so I'm not going to read it again. This is a very, 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 very dense descriptive section but when you clear away all the subordinate phrases and all the explanations and all that thing what you find is the commands are simple it says you are children in our section you are infants he says in the beginning of six go on to maturity because it is impossible for those who have fallen away to restore them to repentance that's scary that's terrifying So go on to maturity. It's not just, come on, guys, let's do a little better. No, it's dangerous. He's telling them, be on your guard about this. Remaining and regressing to fence riding on these doctrines, on the general truths, without applying and walking in the glories of who Jesus is and holding to the gospel of what he has done is dangerous. When the crisis comes... The immature won't stand. So he says, let's go on to maturity. Before I continue telling you all about Jesus as your high priest, let's go on to maturity. And this we will do if God permits. Let's pray. Father, we do love you. We thank you for your word. God, I don't know if I, don't know if I got it as clear as I needed to, God, but your word is powerful. Your word is true. And the text is right there in front of us, God. I pray that we would go and, and that we would just in, ingest what you have said that we would reread your text over and over, that we would meditate upon it. God, that your spirit would speak to us. Uh, Father, we pray that you would show us what it means 
to have our powers of discernment trained by constant use as we, as we meditate on what we've been given and who we are and the salvation that we've, we've experienced and what it means that Jesus is my high priest and that he has done all these things and that he has given us atonement and all the things that will be presented in chapter 7 through 10. God, we pray that you would show us what it means to grow, to live like these things are true because they are. Father, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't trusted in you, that has not trusted in your son, his death, resurrection, God, I pray that you would call them to yourself, that you would draw them, draw them to yourself. Let them know that they can't work for it, they can't earn it. They have to trust in you. And you offer salvation freely. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your gospel. And I thank you for the opportunity uh, to stand before your people and say, thus saith the Lord. I pray that you'd help me to be faithful. We love you and we thank you in Jesus. Amen. I'm going to stand right down here. I would love to talk to you if you want to come. Will you stand with me?